From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. As we age, we expect a few aches and pains, but chronic pain can affect every aspect of life, making daily tasks difficult and even affecting our ability to get a good night's sleep. Oh, no. (laughs) On today's program, we'll discuss pain management for older adults with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn when it's safe to return to play after a concussion. Then, how deep learning and artificial intelligence is helping read kidney biopsies faster. And finally, we'll learn about the work of research pharmacists preparing medications for patients and clinical trials. That's this week's program. Up next... Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Chronic pain in later life is a worldwide problem. In fact, it's probably one of the most common problems, one of the most common conditions that we see in the medical profession, particularly among adults over the age of 65. And also work a lot in nursing homes. And regardless of the setting that I'm seeing patients in, it's probably the single most common thing that I encounter, multiple patients every day with various pain complaints. What's the difference between pain and chronic pain? Yeah, so the, the definition is somewhat arbitrary. Uh, chronic pain is defined as anything that lasts longer than three months. But I think really the important thing is to distinguish is things that we expect to be transient. For instance, pain that occurs after surgery or after an injury from pain that is caused by a condition that we expect to be permanent. How do you see it impact patients' lives? Yeah, profoundly. So pain has wide-reaching consequences for our older adult patients. Uh, impacts on mood, ability to sleep at night, uh, day-to-day functioning, so ability to get around one's house or get out in the community and run errands or interact with friends. It leads to social isolation, leads to depression. So we know that pain is incredibly important because it touches every aspect of one's life. So it's not necessarily every day for three months or all day for three months, but it could be just every morning or every evening you experience pain for three months. Absolutely. So the okay. pain does not have to be continuous. When I, It can be intermittent. So you might have it several days a week, but you might have a couple of good days where you don't. You might just have it at certain times a day or with certain activities. All comers, all patients you see in the office, would you say this is the most common complaint? Probably so. I have, I have not sat down and, you know, uh, calculated that statistically, but off the top of my head, it, it probably is. Yeah. What, what do most of these patients have that, that's causing the pain? So there's a wide variety of things, and, and most of these, the prevalence and the risk for these goes up with advancing age. So probably the single most common thing is osteoarthritis. So osteoarthritis is the usual kind of wear and tear arthritis that causes damage to joints over time. So a common cause of back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, hip pain. There are many other things too. So for instance, there's a variety of different things that can cause nerve pain that are common in older adults. Folks who have diabetes can get something called diabetic neuropathy that causes nerve damage and is a common source of pain in the hands and feet. And there's a long list of others, but those are some of the more common ones that we encounter. So diabetes is a very difficult uh, disease with lots of different complications, blood vessels, organs, different organs, eyesight, um, and also the nerves. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So we know that having elevated blood sugar levels accumulated over months and years tends to cause damage to the, the longest nerve. So if you think about the longest nerves in your body, they're the ones that exit your lower spine and go all the way down to the tips of your toes. And the further away they are from the spine, the more likely they are to get damaged. So when really? we see diabetic nerve pain, we tend to first see kind of burning pain in the toes and the soles of the feet. And as it gets worse, we may see it progress up the legs or affect the hands and fingers as well. So if patients come in and say that I'm having chronic pain, how do you determine, yes, you are having chronic pain? <laughs> yeah, so I think as with many uh, concerns that our patients bring to us, the first step is just to sit down and spend the time and get a good story from them. Uh, taking a pain history, which is going to involve lots of elements like the duration of the pain, the location of the pain, activities that bring it on or make it better, what things that they've tried at home to manage it are all key elements of, of understanding their story. But maybe to take that a step further and a very important piece of how we think about assessing chronic pain is how does it affect their function? So I think any patient with pain who's ever shown up to the doctor has been asked, rate your pain on a scale of one to 10. But I think increasingly we recognize that we have to move beyond those numerical ratings and think about how is the pain affecting day-to-day -day function? Is it keeping you from doing things that you otherwise would be doing? And we also focus on that when we think about treatments for pain and whether or not we're being successful. Have we allowed folks to do activities that they were previously not able to do because of pain? So how do you approach the management? I mean, you've got lots of modalities that you can use. How do you decide what to use first? And what's your general approach? Yeah, I think so. The general approach first is to is to try to get a sense for what's causing the pain. And that, you know, is going to require spending time talking to the patient and doing a physical exam and potentially some testing, depending on the exact situation. There might be x-rays or other imaging tests involved to help clarify what's going on. Once we understand what we think is causing the pain, um, then our general approach to management from there, I think, particularly in older adults who can be more vulnerable to adverse effects from, from pain treatments, we try to select treatments that are low risk and potentially high benefit first and leave the sort of higher risk treatments for down the line if the low hanging fruit doesn't work. Is the higher risk treatments the medications, which is considered higher risk. Absolutely. So how I would kind of break that down further and think about it would be for non-severe pain where I feel like I have some time and it's not an urgent uh, issue to get it under control, I would first think about what non-medication strategies might help. So that's a wide variety of things depending on the exact situation. It might be exercise. It might be cognitive behavioral therapy. Now explain um, that. What does that mean? Yeah, so, so cognitive behavioral therapy essentially uh, operates under the um, paradigm that chronic pain is much more than just, you know, something on your body hurts and you perceive that. That pain signal gets processed through your brain, and so things like anxiety, stress, emotions, sleep deprivation, personality, all of those things have a strong impact on the pain experience, and cognitive behavioral therapy tries to alter some of those processes to make the experience of pain not so severe. Changing the habit of the way that you think. Absolutely. Yeah. What about uh, over-the-counter pain medications, and I'm thinking uh, non-steroidal inflammatory drugs and acetaminophen, Tylenol. What are the precautions that older individuals need to be thinking about if they're taking those medications? Yeah, great questions. And so acetaminophen is probably 
the safest thing in terms of pain medications that's out there. Just about everybody, regardless of what your medical history and medical conditions are, can take a couple of grams of acetaminophen in divided doses per day. There are some rare exceptions to that. So if you have advanced liver disease or if you have an uh, allergy to acetaminophen, uh, those might be situations to talk to your doctor. But just about everybody can take a couple extra strength Tylenol twice a day. NSAIDs are a little bit of a different story. So so NSAIDs are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. That's things like ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve. Um, those need to be used with a little bit more caution in older adults, mainly for a couple of different reasons. So they can cause some damage to the kidneys when used over longer periods of time. And they also are quite irritating to the stomach. So they can cause uh, inflammation, even ulcers or bleeding. So those are best if you're going to use them for more than a, a short period of time to discuss with your healthcare team. And how do you manage these different modalities, the different things that you try? Do you stay in touch with the patient to see how it's working? Yeah, so so that's absolutely a big key is when you see someone for chronic pain, you don't just come up with a plan and say, I'll see you in a year. You know, this is a, a frequent reassessment, um, evaluate how, you know, whatever changes were made to try to manage the pain, how are those helping or not helping? And I think a key, particularly with medications, is if we start a medication with the intent of improving pain and pain-related function, and we see that individual back in the office a couple of weeks later, and they say, boy, this hasn't helped at all. We need to stop that medication. I think too often in healthcare, we, we end up with these things called prescribing cascades, where we add a medicine, and then we add another medicine, and then we add another medicine, and pretty soon somebody's on 15 drugs. They're all interacting with each other. They're causing problems. So we need to be uh, judicious and avoid that scenario. That's why you need a good geriatrician. Absolutely. It's a whole thrust of what we do. Yeah. All right. Chronic pain in later life is a huge problem and often associated with significant disability. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic geriatrician, Dr. Brandon Verdorn. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dr. Verdorn. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn when it's safe to return to play after a concussion. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Concussion. It's become a major public health concern and with good reason. Sports-related concussion affects up to 4 million athletes every year. Youth, adolescent, amateur, professional athletes, they're all at risk for a concussion. One of the most difficult questions facing healthcare providers is, when is it safe to return to play after a concussion? Joining us on the phone to help answer that question is Mayo Clinic Arizona neurologist and director of the Mayo Clinic Concussion Program, Dr. David Dodick. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. A lot of discussion, concern about concussion in the past uh, few years. It seems like maybe it took us a long time to figure out that getting your bell rung was worse than we thought. It did take us a long time, and it took a long time for neurologists to really get, uh, you know, interested and serious about this problem. And I think it was, you know, it's really been the potential long-term serious consequences that can occur as a result of particularly repetitive head injuries and repetitive concussions that got, well, the entire medical community uh, and all stakeholders really, uh, really interested and really involved. Why do we lose consciousness when we get a concussion, or do you have to lose consciousness to have a concussion? 
Well, that's one of the early misconceptions is that a, a concussion only occurred with a loss of consciousness. And we now know that about 90 to 95 percent of concussions have no associated loss of consciousness. 90 so, to 95 percent. Yeah. So wow. only about 5 to 10 percent of people actually lose consciousness with a concussion. So that's a misconception and a myth that needs to be, you know, you dispelled. Know, expelled quickly. In fact, we now know that... Um, Sometimes the brain injury associated with a concussion can occur even in the absence of symptoms. Uh, hmm. We see changes in the brain that occurs uh, in athletes who haven't reported any symptoms and who aren't experiencing symptoms, or at least not that they tell us. So, you know, we've gone all the way from needing to lose consciousness to not even having symptoms to having a brain injury from concussion. You say changes in the brain. Do you mean something that you get from the history or from imaging? Imaging. Okay, like an yeah. MRI scan. An MRI scan, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, sophisticated types of MRI scans that can actually, at a more microscopic level, more refined level, actually see the injury that's occurred, even in people who haven't reported symptoms. If you do get knocked out or lose consciousness with a head injury, does it take longer to recover? Is it generally a more serious injury? Generally, it is, although not always. But, you know, in, in my experience, typically the impact has to be you know, very severe, and the brain really has to be jarred uh, and moved around uh, quite a bit to, to actually lose consciousness. So in our experience, it typically is associated with a more prolonged recovery um, than those that aren't associated with a loss of consciousness. But again, not always. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I've got teenagers, so I'm thinking of the high school sports or college sports. One of the ways that you tell if a kid has a concussion is there has been a baseline done before they start the sports, and then that's the way they can tell on the sidelines. Is that the only way you can tell if a student or if an athlete has a concussion? Well, first you, you recognize an athlete may be concussed. Uh, from the nature of the hit itself and how that athlete's responding. So they may be slow to get up. They may seem a little not quite like themselves, a little dazed, a little confused, a little disoriented. So there are signs like that where they might stagger a little bit or stumble, um, and uh, or they might come over to the sideline and, and vomit. Um, so there are certain signs that sort of tip you off that, that a concussion may have occurred. And then you, of course, you know, take the history and you, you do a uh, a cognitive history and a balance examination and a eye examination and a neurological examination indeed to see if the athlete has had a concussion but it, it remains a clinical diagnosis there's no blood test obviously or imaging test that you can do on the sideline to definitively make the diagnosis so it's based on the recognition of signs uh, that might be there and in the absence of signs that are obvious it's a very refined and focused examination it does require or it should require a baseline because you know, examining an athlete in the heat of the game, in the middle of a game on the sideline, not knowing what that athlete might have looked like before, especially even if you weren't the one that's doing the baseline examination, it can be challenging. And so that's why quantifiable, objective baseline tests, can, like, uh, like the King Devic test in association with Mayo Clinic, which is one that's part of our sideline evaluation, can be very helpful because it's a, it's a one to two minute test. It objectively tracks eye movements, and you get a score, basically a time at the end of it, and you can compare that to their baseline. And if they're slower, there's a high degree of likelihood that that individual's had a concussion. Hmm. So uh, tell us about the usual time for recovery. And I guess, first of all, when should you see a physician? These things happen every day. H how do you know, or does someone know, or a family know that they, their student or their athlete ought to see a physician? 
Well, they, they really should see a health care provider who has some expertise in this area because they shouldn't be returned to play uh, until they've been cleared. And, you know, being cleared to return to play means that, you know, their examination is normal. Hopefully it's being compared to a baseline and they're back to their baseline. And then it then it's safe to return them to play. So I think all athletes who have been concussed should be seen by, and in many states now it's a requirement that they be seen and cleared by a health care provider before they can return to play. And what happens if you let them go back too soon? Well, then there's a, an increased likelihood um, that they're going to get reconcussed. And so there's a period of vulnerability while the brain is kind of recovering. And that can take anywhere from seven days to, to eight weeks. Um, mm. Typically, it takes longer in children to recover. And so there are some imaging studies that suggest that the, even though the athlete may say they're recovered and they may truly be recovered insofar as, you know, they're not complaining of any more symptoms, their symptoms are gone and they look normal, when you actually look at the brain, metabolically, it may not recover for up to four weeks. Um, metabolically? Metabolically. So what I mean by that is like when you look at brain function um, and when you look at um, some of the um, chemicals in the brain, with sophisticated type of imaging, um, we can see that th that doesn't actually come back to normal uh, for up to four weeks. And so during that window of vulnerability, we call it, um, the, the individual is much more likely to suffer another symptomatic concussion, um, particularly in, in even with a lesser degree of impact. So the hit may not even look that bad, but because their brain um, hasn't healed or hasn't recovered from the previous concussion, they're much more vulnerable to having a repeat concussion. And if that happens, then the recovery is even more prolonged. And I've certainly seen athletes who have had a repeat concussion when they, you know, they come back the next week, uh, and then they may be out for months or sometimes even indefinitely. So one of the consequences of premature return to play is an increased risk of another concussion. What else? Well, there's a, a very rare syndrome called second impact syndrome you know, sudden, often fatal brain swelling and edema. That's rare, but we see cases of that every year. Mm. And so, you know, that's one thing that can happen. The main thing, though, that can happen is the development of another concussion. And the reason that's important is that recovery can be prolonged and the development of persistent post-concussion symptoms can occur. And so it's not uncommon for us to see athletes who have had repetitive concussions still having symptoms months and years later. Wow. All right, Dr. David Dodek, who is a neurologist at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Concussion can affect any athlete in any contact sport at almost any age, and it's obviously a serious injury. And it's important to make sure that someone qualified helps make the decision about return to play. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Arizona neurologist, Dr. David Dodek. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Dr. Nordic. Time for a short break. When we return... Help reading kidney biopsies and the work of research pharmacists. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A biopsy means that some cells, some tissue, or maybe some fluids are removed from the body to make a diagnosis. And the removed sample is usually looked at under a microscope by a pathologist. Now, the pathologists are looking at multiple sections, multiple samples. You know, it's really tedious, time-consuming work. 
But advances in machine learning are helping pathologists look at more specimens faster and more accurately, at least when it comes to biopsies from the kidney. And here to tell us more about that process is Mayo Clinic pathologist Dr. Priya Alexander and Mayo Clinic statistician Dr. Byron Smith. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. A pathologist and a numbers guy. So tell us first uh, what it is, your, your role at the Mayo Clinic as a pathologist, and you are called an anatomic pathologist. Tell us what that means. So an anatomic pathologist is somebody who looks at tissue macroscopically. That's the gross specimen. We look at it under the microscope, so microscopically. And then we can do additional tests. We can do immunological tests, um, biochemical tests, molecular tests to arrive at a diagnosis. And sometimes you do special stains. It takes a while to get the answer back, I remember. Yes. You can do all kinds of special stains that help you illustrate special features in the biopsy better. Are you and pretty good at it? I mean, uh, are you, I hope are so. the diagnoses pretty accurate? Diagnoses by pathologists are pretty accurate. Uh, it's when you have to do a lot of quantitative studies and large number of data, then there are questions on, you know, reproducibility, especially when you have quantitative data that, and semi-quantitative data. That's when there's variability with pathologists. And is that why the numbers guy is here? Absolutely. So, Dr. Smith, tell us about what you do. Statistician, how do, and how do you get involved with Dr. Alexander? Yeah, so uh, here I am a... Um, I kind of focus on kidney transplant. Uh, so kidney transplant, uh, fortunately, the outcome of the transplant is actually pretty good. But that means that we really have to look at larger trends, which is why I work on it. So we are trying to figure out how can we extend the life of kidney transplants through statistical models. And what we found was actually pathology and the results that pathologists come up with uh, is a significant predictor of um, outcome. So in other words, if you take a biopsy of a transplanted kidney and Dr. Alexander looks at it, and then you can put some numbers to that and help determine how long the kidney is going to survive? Absolutely. We can take their diagnosis or scores from that um, biopsy. We can put them into mathematical models and predict whether or not a patient will have a graft that survives longer or shorter. And it's the kidney that brought the two of you together. Yes, that's <laughs> yes. correct. Why did you, did you have a special interest in the kidney, Dr. Alexander? Yeah, I think uh, ever since medical school, I fell in love with kidney. The pathophysiology of the uh, non-tumor kidney for me is very fascinating. Huh. We want to talk about uh, the, this study that was done. It was called Deep Learning-Based Histopathologic Assessment of Kidney Tissue. So tell us a little bit about that. Put that into lay terms for us. So histopathology, as I said, is looking at the kidney tissue under the microscope, and we're looking at unique structures in the kidney, such as the glomeruli, tubules, and interstitium and blood vessels. That's stuff in the kidney that helps you make urine. And we as renal pathologists look renal at this. Renal meaning kidney. Kidney pathologists. We look at the different structures and look at them together uh, with special stains, immunofluorescence, electron microscopy, and we can come up with a diagnosis as to what is wrong with this kidney. And in the transplant, there are several systems that we use to analyze these kidneys to come up with more objective reports that help 
uh, talk about how the kidney is, uh, you know, how to predict different outcomes in the kidney, what is going on with this kidney. Is there rejection? Is there recurrent disease? These are the things that we're looking at. So that's the deep learning part of it? No, so this is the histopathology. Well, the deep learning comes first in the title, so (laughs) what does that part mean? Yeah. I think some of the terms like AI and machine learning have become a little bit nebulous. Everyone uses them slightly differently. Um, Deep learning uh, specifically refers to the application of what are called neural networks. And here the idea is that in a standard statistical model, we might model some sort of outcome with predictors. But here in a neural network, we apply a model to a model to a model to a model in layers, and that makes it deep. What we have found, and this is unique not just to renal pathology but to all pathology, is that when you are dealing with semi-quantitative data, it's tedious, it's repetitive, and you can make errors. And it's not just in kidney pathology and breast pathology when you're looking for tumors. This is where human error in reproducibility is well known. And that is where applying machine learning can really help reduce errors. For example, just counting glomeruli. One would think that's simple enough, and it's not complicated. But the human has what is called a visual spatial um, memory, and that is where we can make errors in simple things like counting. So if a machine can do that well, and if a machine can tell you how much interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy is, it is more accurate and more reproducible, we have found in different studies that we have done, to actually predict outcome better. And so, so what that's, does this machine look like? You're talking about a machine that's helping you. So from the pathologist's perspective, the slide, which is the glass slide, is mm-hmm. now scanned with different, um, there are several scanners that are available, Aperio and Philips scanners, and you get what's called a whole slide image. And then you identify the pathologist or a morphometrician, that's somebody who's skilled in identifying these unique structures, identifies different components in that kidney biopsy. And then we move on to the machine. Yeah, so what we have to use is something called a graphical processing unit. It's a special kind of hardware that will allow us to process the images faster. So once we take these images, the images actually happen to be huge. So they will be something like 100 megabytes to a gigabyte. So if you have several images, you'll have several terabytes. So it takes a lot of hardware to even store the images, let alone process the images. But once we start processing, what we will do is you use this neural network, and it will go through the image looking for specific characteristics of different tissue types. So for example, vessels or glomeruli, they might have different borders or might have different shapes. And once it figures out those shapes, it can classify the pixels in the image as belonging to a glomerulus or belonging to a tubule, something like that. And so in doing this, it segments out each object within the biopsy, and it will automatically calculate things like areas, densities, and shapes of all of those objects. So instead of having a pathologist kind of guess at some of these things, you can immediately know whether or not uh, your glomeruli are larger than they're supposed to be or something, another change is happening. So your machine can do what Dr. Alexander can do, only faster and better. Not for making the diagnosis, but for... Quantitative and semi-quantitative data, it certainly is going to be more accurate. And is this going to become more common? Pathologists rely more and more on machine learning and AI to make a diagnosis and to do things like studies like you're talking about? 
Well, I think we certainly are moving into the era of digital pathology and uh, machine learning. And our Mayo Clinic pathology is a global leader. And we um, have an enterprise team with uh, Dr. Bill Maurice, who's the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology and Scott Beck, and they are spearheading this movement. And they have actually got uh, funding from the Mayo Clinic leadership to invest in digital pathology and artificial intelligence. And they have actually now partnered with Sectra and MedSystems. And it's going to be a big deal starting from 2020. You can expect to see a lot of applications of digital pathology and in the near future, AI. I also wanted to give a little special thanks to uh, Dr. Stiegel and the Stiegel Lab as a group for funding this and putting so much effort towards scanning the slides and developing code in order to create these models, and also to our international collaborators in Radboud, uh, who have- Is that the Netherlands? That is the Netherlands, <laughs> who ultimately put the model together so that, or at least this initial model, so that we could then validate the model on our biopsy slides and move forward with new and better models. All right, artificial intelligence, digital learning. I mean, it's all changing the world, and it's helping pathologists interpret kidney biopsies faster and more accurately. But no question, the world is changing. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic pathologist Dr. Priya Alexander and statistician Dr. Byron Smith. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. Still to come, we'll go behind the scenes with a research pharmacist. Complete versions of Mayo Clinic Radio interviews can be found on the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on your favorite podcast. Podcast provider. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we all know what a pharmacist does. They fill those brown bottles with the right number of pills and the right dosage that your doctor ordered. Hopefully. But <laughs> I can tell you what, there's a special group of pharmacists who do, well, they do a lot more than that. They provide oversight and direction for the use of investigational medications in research studies at the Mayo Clinic. They promote patient safety. They make sure that we're compliant with all the rules and regulations that go along with research studies, of which there are many. And they make sure that the drug the drugs that patients are getting are safe. Joining us in studio to talk more about the role of research pharmacists at the Mayo Clinic are Dr. Anna Bartu and Dr. Heidi Finnis. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank, Thank you. you. Dr. Bartu, Dr. Finnis. So you're both physicians, a PhD, so that means like you're really smart pharmacists. <laughs> you do more than just dispense drugs. That's correct. So we both have the Doctor of Pharmacy degree. We're not physicians. Um, and we get to support over a 1,000 clinical trials at Mayo Clinic, which is really exciting. Oftentimes, patients find themselves in a situation where they have a disease where there is no drug currently available that can treat it. And by coming to Mayo and participating in a trial, that gives them the opportunity to perhaps find something that will work to treat their disease. So tell us about the trials. Does it necessarily mean that they're getting the drug, everybody who's in that trial, or are some patients getting the drug and some not? It depends, actually, on the type of trial that, that patients are in. I know many patients, we have conversations with them about whether or not they're getting the placebo. Um, 
Many trials are trials of giving the investigational drug to try it out for a new disease, and then only when it goes to a phase three or later clinical trial where there's lots of patients being enrolled, may they be um, trialed on a standard of care um, that would traditionally treat, for for example, their type of cancer or um, potentially a placebo if there's nothing else that's offered at that point. Dr. Finnis, do you figure out the randomization or is that something that the researcher does? So oftentimes there's a randomization schedule that is set up by the statistics associated with um, with the study itself. Sometimes if that study is an internal Mayo Clinic written study, then we get that from our statistics department. Other times it's assigned via the sponsor of the study, whether that be the government, whether that be a pharmaceutical company. And that information can come to us in a variety of ways, most often of which is an interactive response system. Um, And so in those, we can log into a system or call a certain phone number, get the randomization for that patient, and then prepare the correct um, drug for the patient. So tell us exactly what that means, randomization. Who gets the drug and who doesn't? Correct. So specific studies will have a schema of how many patients are to receive the investigational drug versus how many patients will receive the standard of care. So say it's a new trial trialing a cancer treatment for colorectal cancer against um, the first-line standard of care full FOX um, chemotherapy. And so in that instance, maybe two patients are randomized to the investigational treatment versus one to the, the standard of care treatment. And so in that mechanism, based on however that's set up behind the scenes, those systems, usually a computer sets that up, um, then will tell us exactly which treatment the patient's supposed to receive. Dr. Bartu, this sounds like a lot of record keeping, a lot of organization. Are you a really organized type of a personality? So I think that's one thing you can universally say about pharmacists is we're very detail-oriented and meticulous. And it's very important that their records are accurate because when these medicines are evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, everything has to be in order so that they have the information they need to be able to evaluate the drug to make sure that it's safe and effective and isn't going to cause harm to patients. But if it's a drug that has not been FDA approved, where does it come from? Do you get it right from the manufacturer? That's a great question. So we actually have some novel agents that have been developed here at Mayo Clinic in different research labs. Pharmaceutical companies are a very large sponsor of our trials and they provide the medicines. Let's talk about the cancer center, because there are so many people these days getting chemotherapy, coming in and out every day, every couple of weeks. Uh, Are you the ones who prepare those drugs for all those patients? Yes, depending on where the treatment is taking place. The research pharmacies are preparing the the medications associated with the treatments for patients with cancer that are on investigational trials. And and so the ones that are given IV, they have to be sterile. So do you have a preparation room where you make sure that these are sterile before they're given to the patient? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of people don't understand all the things that are involved in preparing drugs that are going to be given in the vein. It's very important that the drugs are sterile, that they don't have bacteria or other organisms that can cause disease or harm the patient. So we have specialized clean rooms where these drugs are prepared. Our pharmacy technicians are very well trained in what we call aseptic technique. That's making sure that they don't introduce um, harmful things into the from their own skin or different contamination. And there's a lot of special um, protective 
clothing that is worn and a lot of care and attention taken to make sure that these medicines are exactly how they should be. Dr. Finnis, do you help figure out the protocol for these studies? Um, That's a whole other level of what you can do to assist in this study. So one of the things I think the research pharmacists um, really enjoy is the ability to participate, particularly when Mayo Clinic um, physicians um, author a clinical trial we help to write the drug templates associated with how the drug should be given and so that it's given in the same manner at many other institutions that may be also participating in the trial. We help to write um, the inclusion and exclusion criteria um, to be sure that patients aren't on concurrent medications that may cause drug-drug interactions associated with their treatments, and help to be sure that supportive care, um, say nausea and vomiting medications with chemotherapy, for example, um, are available to the patient, and um, we support them as best we can throughout the clinical trial. So what is how long is the shelf life for most of these drugs? For example, if you have 100 patients coming in for chemotherapy today, and I'm sure there are more than that, when can you prepare those drugs? Can you prepare everything the day before and have it available, or some of the drugs you have to prepare just before the patient gets there? So that's a great question, because oftentimes patients are wondering, what takes so long? Why am I waiting for my drug? Um, so to answer your question, there are many reasons um, why things can't be prepared in advance. The Doses are tailored special for that patient. So oftentimes we need additional information before we can prepare the dose, such as the patient's weight. Or we're Mm. looking at lab work to make sure that um, the dose doesn't need to go higher or lower or maybe held at all. Um, Another thing is when we talk again about randomization, oftentimes for these studies that we call blinded, when neither the participant or the physician know what the patient's getting, it requires us to make sure that we select the specific medication containers for that patient designated through the system. Now, are you in constant communication with the physician who's caring for that patient and helping them? I think you did mention this, but there can be some drug interactions that the physician may not be aware of that could potentially happen based on the kind of drug that you're giving. I I assume you help the physician determine that and prevent adverse effects? One of the things that the research pharmacy groups do um, is we have a rubric that we apply to clinical trials, and it means it's a set of... um, basically instances in which we should ask the uh, study team to have a pharmacy consult prior to the patient going on to a clinical trial if it's at high risk for drug-drug interactions. So our team, for example, will complete more than 500 of these pharmacist consultations on patients going on to clinical trials. About 15% of patients wouldn't be eligible, um, but because we conduct these pharmacy consultations, patients were able to recommend an alternative medication and they're able to go on to receive the clinical trials. Wow, pretty cool. So do you ever uh, interact directly with the patient? Um, Yes, sometimes we do um, when we have questions specific to certain drugs. One of the big things that we try to teach patients is um, anytime they start a new medication, say for a cold at home and they're starting an antibiotic or or something like that, we have them call back to the study team so that we're constantly checking to be sure that nothing's going to interfere with that study medication that they're on. Um, So we do have contact with the patient sometimes um, face-to-face if they request it. Um, Otherwise, 
otherwise it's a lot of communication um, either via the telephone or, or via their electronic medical records. Well, I think you are both an invaluable asset to the clinical practice at the Mayo Clinic. And now you know, Tracy, if you are part of a research study at the Mayo Clinic, there is someone watching out for you, making sure that you get the right drug at the right dose at the right time. Our thanks to research pharmacist Dr. Anna Bartu and Dr. Heidi Finnis. Thanks to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.